Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by cardiologist Dr. Paddy Barrett, chatting all things cardiovascular disease. The way I look at this is that the the two statistics that everyone should really be aware of is cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death globally and in most developed nations, but it's also the most preventable. 90% of it can be prevented at an early stage if you just follow the right steps and formula. So I look at it as a, a scary opportunity. As ever available on all podcast platforms. Today on the Indo-Daily, Graeme Dwyer's bid for freedom. It was following a confluence of extraordinary coincidences that the Gardaí were led to Vartry Reservoir in County Wicklow. And there, in a search, they found two phones. Now, those two phones were literally resuscitated using the very latest in forensic technology. And between them, They became known as the master and slave phones. We were brought on a harrowing journey through the last 17 to 18 months of the life of a very vulnerable young woman called Elaine O'Hara and led us to the monster that is Graham Dwyer. Graham Dwyer has been in prison since 2013, but has never admitted to killing Elaine O'Hara. Now his bid for freedom has been boosted by a European court ruling which questions the gathering of phone evidence that was key to his conviction. I'm Kevin Doyle and today on the Indo-Daily I'm joined by Irish Independent Special Correspondent Paul Williams an Assistant Professor at the School of Law and Government at DCU, Dr Roisin Costello, to explore whether Graeme Dwyer will walk free. Paul Williams, the story of Elaine O'Hara and Graeme Dwyer was one that shocked the country, but it's almost a decade ago now. Remind us of exactly how they came to know each other and how their relationship developed. This on backtracks from 2013 when Elaine's body is found and she'd been presumed to have taken her own life, which is why um, it was almost a perfect murder. Um, it, it would appear, Lane O'Hara was a very vulnerable woman who had a lot of mental health issues. And she became involved in the BDSM scene, which is bondage, domination and sadomasochism, uh, and was on websites uh, describing herself as wanting to be the perfect slave. And a bit like a pe- predator on the Serengeti, um, it, she came to the attention of Graham Dwyer, who was very much in into this scene, but much more extreme version of this scene, uh, and had been out there at this and practicing this for many, many years, uh, behind the back of his wife, obviously, and without the knowledge of anybody who knew him. It was the secret self that he hid. And then this this extremely abusive and manipulative uh, and exploitative relationship uh, developed from there. And we know that it was going on for at least two years. Um, We know, for example, there were two, at the center of this case were 2,600 text messages that were exchanged between a so-called master phone and a slave phone, which Dwyer acquired for, to control their relationship. Um, But we know as well that the relationship predated that. And so when Elaine O'Hara went missing in August 2012, there was a kind of a widespread assumption that it was probably a suicide case. There wasn't any big media reporting on it and there was no body found. 
So nothing really happened until suddenly her remains were stumbled upon and then gradually Graham Dwyer becomes the suspect. A confluence of extraordinary events uh, that dovetailed into each other. On one side of the mountain, uh, a Kiliki Woods, a dog finds bones. The other side of the mountain, at Fartry uh, Reservoir, which is down to record lows because of a long, hot summer, two men who fished there happened to be looking across the bridge and spot these items, which were bondage-related items. But they also found a set of keys. Well, the guard then came along and, and a further investigator who was very curious about what was going on. And the keys were traceable to Elaine O'Hara. The guardies searched the, the Vartry Reservoir and, and uh, find two phones. Those phones are resuscitated using the very latest te- forensic technology and those phones then give up the chilly narrative of this most horrific and sordid relationship. And key to Graeme Dwyer's ultimate conviction was those phones because he, they were nicknamed the master and the slave phone. He held on to the master one. She had the slave phone. And a big part of the evidence that was ultimately put before a jury was about proving that Graham Dwyer was the person sending messages from that master phone. Well, you see, when you analyse the text, uh, he, the, the, the anonymous master gives up an awful lot of personal detail of his life, which he then, when he was being interviewed by uh, the Gardaí in this case, he actually gave up that information because he didn't know what they had. So he corroborated large amounts of, of what they what they had. Uh, and he and that's how they, it led to them. Also, this phone, the, the, the location and the, uh, of the phone at different stages, for example, um, wherever Graham Dwyer went, with his official phone, for some strange reason, this master phone travelled with him. He went home to Cork for an, an event one evening and the phone seemed to go with him. He went to another place down in Tipperary, I believe, to his, to his sisters and the phone went with him. Uh, he went to Galway to advise on, where he's an architect, he was advising on the building of a house in Galway. The slave phone went with him and it was through the movements of the phones that they were able to locate and also using like toll uh, charges and stuff like that that they were able to but ultimately how track down. Him. Did Gardy know that the phone, the master phone, I think, in fact, was with Graham Dwyer? Because, uh, as I say, it, it shadowed him. It was with him wherever he went. If he made, whatever the phone was active. It was active in the same area as his own phone. Like, for example, as well, there is other corroborative evidence. For example, there was the, the video CCTV footage from the apartment where Elaine went, had lived. And he turns up in the CCTV footage. But he turns up at different times in the CCTV footage that gels with the master phone saying, I'll be there in 10 minutes. I'll be there in 15 minutes. Also, the master phone can be tracked traveling to Bellarmine Plaza, where Elaine O'Hara lived. Um, so it, it was, it built ultimately an impenetrable wall of evidence against them. So essentially the case put forward was that me and you have phones here sitting in front of us that are registered and um, they're known to be our phones. We get the bill every month, if you like. But then we often hear, and you see it on television, uh, particularly in, in drug circles, you hear people talking about burner phones, which are... Mm. Phones not registered to anybody, they tend to be credit phones. And the theory that the Gardaí put forward was that this burner phone was 
always in close proximity to Graham Dwyer's official phone and they tracked both of them and built up a picture of him, as you say, travelling around the country and being in close contact with, with where Elaine O'Hara was. That was presented to the jury. But what is at stake here now is the fact that a European court believes that that evidence should never have been put in front of a jury. Which is why every man and woman in Ireland um, today uh, are scratching their heads and wondering what the hell is going on here. It is one of the reasons why today, and I don't normally subscribe to this belief because I understand law, is why people are saying the law is an ass. Because in this case, it is an ass. Because it is completely confused and... Com- <laughs> like, you know, it, what did that judgment from the European Union uh, or the Court of Justice is saying that the rights to privacy of criminal perpetrators, rapists, murderers, drug traffickers, takes precedence over the rights of the victims of those perpetrators. There is no other interpretation to that, Kevin. Dr. Roshin Costello, Assistant Professor at the School of Law and Government in DCU, the Graham Dwyer ruling from the European courts wasn't unexpected. There have been some cases of a similar vein over recent months, but it is a pretty big deal and it has been watched by countries across the European Union, hasn't it? Yeah, I think I think that's fair to say, uh, Kevin. I mean, the, this is the most recent decision really in a string of cases that go back to 2014, uh, just after Dwyer's conviction actually, and which cast the directive um, that is kind of at the centre of all of this in doubt and subsequently led to a, a series of, of uh, cases from national uh, courts coming before the Court of Justice where national legislation which had been introduced um, to affect that directive really in national law uh, were, were struck down. So Dwyer's is the kind of most recent iteration of that series of cases. And as you say, we've had cases quite recently striking down similar legislation from other member states uh, on a very similar basis. So not unexpected. And in layman's term, explain what is at stake here, because I kind of operate on the basis that somebody knows where I am at all times. If it's not Google Maps, it's WhatsApp or Facebook. um, And therefore, there is very little privacy to my movements anymore. So why have the courts decided that in this instance, Graeme Dwyer is entitled to a level of privacy? Sure. So I suppose it it falls into this uh, kind of unusual and in some ways quite complex um, setting about who and what companies are retaining what data and on what basis they're giving it um, to authorities that are investigating these kind of crimes in particular. So as you say, companies like Google, who provide us with services that monitor our location an awful lot of the time, depending on how we put up, up our settings. Um, they have a, a kind of a, a different relationship with uh, authorities that are investigating crimes. What's really at issue in Graham Dwyer's case um, is a piece of legislation, the Communications Retention of Data Act 2011, which obliged service providers, and here in specifically we're talking about mobile phone service providers, to retain data about uh, their customers and the devices they were using and how they were using them. So they retained traffic data, which uh, to us that would be things like when and where the phone is used, the other numbers it's calling, and also metadata, which is more technical data about the device and what it's doing or or not doing. The issue really is that uh, that retention 
was seen as being uh, too broad. It was indiscriminate in the Court of Justice's words. Um, and that meant that it was it really applied to, to everybody. And the Court of Justice has found in previous cases that that kind of indiscriminate retention where everybody's data is being kept for sometimes quite a significant period of time is just not permissible because it breaches your right to private and family life uh, and also perhaps to data protection. So in Dwyer's case, they say there are, it's not that no retention of data is permissible. Data can be retained in certain circumstances, uh, but it can't be retained in this kind of broad and general and indiscriminate way. And it would seem to me that there is a logic to it, because to retaining it, because it was a key part of the evidence in the Graham Dwyer trial. He was found guilty. Is there not an argument that the law is being a bit of an ass here? So I think that's certainly the way it's, it's initially perceived. I think the, the maybe the key bit of the judgment to focus on, and it's something the court emphasises itself, is that it's not that no data can be retained in circumstances where somebody is suspected of a, a serious crime or that no data can be retained at all. The thing the court really emphasises is there's this need for what it calls proportionality. So essentially that if you're going to take measures like the retention of da- this kind of data, that impact on people's privacy rights, the way you do that has to be uh, calculated to be, I suppose, um, in proportion to the seriousness of the need to do that. And that has to be held in a balance against their privacy rights. So the court says, for example, you can permit the retention of data where it's limited to certain categories of people or to certain geographic areas for discrete periods of time. You can, for example, uh, monitor somebody or retain IP addresses. And specifically what they emphasise in the Dwyer decision yesterday, and I think probably it's them kind of giving a hint to national authorities that this is how they're going to have to deal with this in future, is that there is a provision for uh, allowing national legislation to allow for what they call expedited retention. And that's essentially where there's an ongoing criminal investigation it doesn't reach the threshold of what the court refers to as serious crime, which would be something like terrorism or a threat to national security. But it is necessarily what we would probably think of day to day as serious crime, something like a murder, an assault, uh, something with very serious consequences, obviously, for the victims and society. And in that case, the court says you can apply to a court, um, so get judicial authorization really, for a service provider to start retaining data in relation to, for example, the suspects in that crime from that point forward. So there are investigatory mechanisms that can be used. It's just that we can't have this kind of broad and indiscriminate retention of everybody's data because that interferes obviously with everybody's privacy rights, including people who have no uh, connection whatsoever to any kind of criminal activity or anything else that might make them, I suppose, uh, maybe a, a reasonable suspect in any of this kind of activity. Isn't that exactly the problem, though, in the Graham Dwyer case? Because Olena Hara was missing for some time. There wasn't a murder inquiry um, for a long time after she had gone missing, Graham Dwyer had never come to the attention of Gardy before. He wasn't, he was an architect from South Dublin. He wasn't somebody that would, you would, would normally fit into that, I suppose, suspect category that you're talking about. So by the time the Gardy came knocking to Graham Dwyer's door, a long time had passed from when the crime actually took place. Yeah, and certainly that's obviously an issue that the Gardaí are going to have to deal with. The the point of view that's emphasised by the Court of Justice is that 
the cost of ensuring maybe greater efficacy in terms of the initial stages of an investigation that rely on just this kind of evidence um, isn't really sufficient in their mind uh, in terms of the cost there is to everybody's privacy rights if you permit this kind of retention. And Paul Williams, this now is the quandary facing the judicial system back in Dublin. The Supreme Court has to try and decipher this ruling from the European Court of Justice. The expectation is that they'll mostly go along with it. And then Graeme Dwyer is expected that in October or November, he'll be before the Court of Appeal trying to get out back onto the streets. That's correct, and it'll be one of the most anticipated cases in quite a while. In fact, one have to note that the Supreme Court hand-passed hand this one to the European Court, and when it comes back, it'll be hand-passed from them to the Court of Criminal Appeal, which has quite a, a quandary on its hands. But there are there are a lot of arguments, and it's important, to, I suppose, to remind people, because the public are very, very concerned about this, and they're quite rightly to be concerned about it. But all the legal experts would suggest that, but then again, you never know. But most of the legal minds and the Gardaí believe that it is very unlikely that Graham Dwyer is going to get his freedom on the back of this because, as I told you earlier, there was a lot of, there was a lot of other strong evidence against him. But the problem that the public will have is how many other criminals are going to get off on the back of this. So this ruling, if a, if a court, if, if a law confuses the people who are supposed to adhere to that law, as in the public, then it's up to the judiciary in this case to completely decipher that and give guidance to the Department of Justice, who, by the way, and which should have done something about this eight, seven to eight years ago, so that it is codified and it is black and white and there is no more ambiguity around it. But there is an option for the Gardaí when they have to go back into court to argue that what they did in collecting this data around the phones was inadvertent and that they didn't mean to step outside the boundaries of privacy law and therefore that the evidence should still be admissible. Absolutely. Like, they have the defence of this was done quite innocently, but you have to look back at the bigger picture. When you go after a dangerous killer, there shouldn't be issues around privacy. It shouldn't have to be inadvertent. They're doing their job. And the one thing about technology is that it's an axiomatic source of evidence, and in this case was unimpeachable. It was top-class evidence. But what are Gardaí saying to you about how this will impact their work? Because I think it was 13 other countries were monitoring this case. Uh, there's a lot of other countries who are were taking the side of the Irish government, the Irish state, in opposing um, what has happened here. So how will it actually affect investigations? It is going to have a detrimental effect on the investigation of organised crime. Remember, Europol and the EU have identified the growth in organised crime as one of the single greatest threats, apart from terrorism, to European civil society. I think the best way to sum up the effect this is going to have is from Paul Gallagher, the Irish Attorney General, when he basically summarised the concerns of the other governments across the EU. When he told the, the, the European Court this last September, he said, there are serious crimes, we're telling you now, that will not be capable of being detected and prosecuted. And the reason is that the modern technology has outpaced the means of investigation. <laughs> so there are a lot of criminals today licking their lips and quite happy with that outcome because they feel that my privacy predominates 
over the rights of my victims. And you know what? I'd probably get away with it. And are there criminals then? Do we know of other cases where barristers or, or, or legal eagles have been studying this, waiting for this, anticipating this, and will now seek to use it for their own client's advantage? Absolutely. The Guardian are saying that they're expecting a deluge of cases coming before the court a criminal appeal based on this. And there are quite a few. Like, there are, you, you, people are asking me, how many cases? You could be dozens and scores and maybe even hundreds of cases. But one, two of the cases, probably the most uh, prominent at the moment that people are talking about, like, for example, people are speculating in relation to Joe O'Reilly, another notorious killer. Well, he was convicted in 2002, so his case predates Rachel all Callally, of this. Rachel O'Reilly, his, his wife. wife uh, Rachel. Um, but his case predates all of this precedent. So he has exhausted all levels or all avenues of appeal. So he will not have the option of doing what Graeme Dwyer has done here because he's an, an example of another killer who has always maintained his innocence. Um, but phones were a big part in his conviction as well in terms of where he was at certain times. It was the first case in Irish criminal justice history that I can remember where phone uh, cell site analysis was used to such an extent uh, and was so important in the case. So he, he hasn't a foot to stand on. So I'm afraid Joe can, uh, there's no point in me even wasting the, the 20 cents and phoning the, his lawyer. But to bring it up more up to date, uh, and I saw, you, you could see this when you were watching the the, the Kevin Lunny uh, case where, you know, the men who were convicted of the abduction and torture of Kevin Lunny from Quinn Industrial Holdings. Um, there was a big part of that case focused by the defence, focused on phone data. And the reason that is so it's in the record for the Court of Criminal Appeal. Um, however, it's felt that that won't uh, succeed because this phone data was uplifted almost immediately after the abduction of Kevin Lunny. As soon as he was he was found on the road and the police start investigation started, there wasn't a year of a lapse between the time of the crime and the time of the arrest of these individuals. But certainly, the Court of Criminal Appeal is going to be a very busy place. Um, in, 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 the, in the months and years ahead on the back of this. I'm Kevin Doyle and today's Indo Daily was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Gareth Mulhall, recorded by Gavin Hennessy with sound design by John Smith. If you enjoyed the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.